everybody, and welcome once again to Farmerama. We have some slightly longer stories for you this month from three young farmers scattered across the globe. We visit one of the lesser-known winemaking regions, Wales, to get one perspective on biodynamic farming. Then we're off to the hills of Catalonia to hear from a small-scale chicken farmer. And finally, we take a dose of medicine just outside Seattle in the form of herbs, human connections, and the land itself. First up is young Welsh biodynamic farmer, Dave Morris. He grows and makes natural wine at Anchor Hill Estates in Monmouthshire, Wales. Biodynamic farming is often seen as pretty esoteric, but Dave makes it all seem fairly straightforward and sensible. Here he tells us why he converted to biodynamics from conventional farming, explains some of the philosophy and describes how he prepares his special biodynamic brews. So I'm Dave Morris. Um, I'm the winemaker and uh, vineyard manager at Ankhill Estates, uh, which is a biodynamically certified vineyard and winery in uh, Monmouth, which is like southeast Wales. So I was managing a, a lot of land, uh, it's nearly 45 hectares of vines that was all quite young, that had been planted on sort of very intensively farmed arable land that hadn't really had a rest and the amount of sort of chemicals and stuff that was being used on the on the grapes just to sort of get them productive and keep them productive seemed to be increasing every year and like the actual sort of quality of the soil was noticeably deteriorating so all the things sort of combined I kind of it didn't make any logical sense it didn't there didn't seem any sort of sustainable sustainability to to carrying on that way so that's when I started reading about especially biodynamic production you know there was one particular farmer's called uh, producer called Gerard Gobi whose methods were very seemed really practical and logical and really um, down to earth he was just a good farmer and that really sort of struck a chord with me and I sort of kind of maybe against sort of advice at the time chucked in my quite good job and comfortable life and um yeah moved to France and and worked for somebody who was affiliated with him um and also worked um for a similar sort of ideologically minded producer in Champagne and Burgundy and um everything I learned then sort of brought back here um so it's very similar lines to sort of soil association or organic accreditation in fact, we actually do achieve a um, organic certification as well. But then to get the Demeter certification, you have to be using the, the biodynamic preps. So um, preparation 500, which is horn manure, and preparation 501, which is horn silica, have to be used at least once a year. Um, and the idea of the, those two is one is working on... Um, one is working on the soil, the 500, and one is working on light, really, on, on the atmosphere, and that's 501. And so the two kind of used in conjunction to balance each other. 
the two those the two perhaps the reason i i prefer it to sort of organics is that um biodynamics seems a lot more like proactive in that you're you're trying to you're trying to affect those two um forces um it's not it's not just about what you don't use and from a logical point of view like 500 to me is like such an intense um population of active bacteria and fungi that you're kind of like if you're making bread or beer or something you're you're creating the the conditions in the soil rather than like the dough and then you're adding loads of bacteria and fungi to that to proliferate um it's like seeding the 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 ground with the 501 it's more a case of you're, you're basically spraying a very very dilute um set of crystals all over the vineyard I'll start stirring for 501 at like half past four in the morning and I'll have it sprayed on the vine- whole vineyard by eight o'clock in the morning. And then you have like, if it's a beautiful sunny day, you've basically kind of almost sprayed like hundreds of thousands of m- tiny mirrors all over your canopy. And then the sunlight is, you know, reflecting all of those, you're maximizing your, your sunlight. I like the philosophical aspect of biodynamics, but I, there's a kind of a practical rationale as well that I, that I really, I find really interesting. Again, under organic and biodynamic um, uh, certification, you're allowed to use sulfur and copper. They're the two, um, as, as most people know. Um, sulfur is really readily just evaporated and used up in the environment. So I wouldn't say it's not harmful, but it's um, there's more of a buffer. There's more sort of capacity for the for, for the environment to to use it. Copper is much more. Um, kind of it it hangs around in the soil for a long long time and can cause quite a few problems and it's if it's used in the right you know small amounts and stuff it you know it's it it can be necessary I understand that I'd rather not use it if I could and so we started looking at alternatives and again from reading mainly um started discovering that willow um and other osier trees that are very high in salicylic acid it's actually very easy to extract salicylic acid um, and it could be used instead of copper. So initially we started using it in conjunction with a copper spray. Um, and as the vines have become sort of healthier and more robust, as they've got used to biodynamics and, um, and some, you know, like ground cover competition, and all that sort of stuff, we've eased off and we've not had to use copper now for, this is the fifth year. Because of where we, we live and where we're growing as well, there's a huge number of other plants that are really high in salicylic acid. So we use something called clivers as well, which is goose grass that, you know, like as a kid, you can get stick to people's clothes. It, and it's really, again, again, it's really um, kind of logical and obvious. Like these plants can grow in humid, damp conditions where nothing else can because they'll suffer from disease. And there's a reason that these plants don't. And so they're kind of, you know, they're telling you, they've got their hands up really asking to be used. And luckily, Wales is quite wet lots of the time, so there's lots of those plants. So we've, they're all readily available. They're all picked really easily, really quickly from around the vineyard and on the fringes of the vineyard and uh, and usable. So the spraying is quite a lot of preparation because um, some of the sprays don't, they won't last for very long. You've got to use them within sort of 24 hours. Yeah, when the conditions look right, you've got to sort of make a decision and go and then, yeah, cross your fingers. Yeah, my kid, my I've got two young kids, and they like it's, since Harry Potter, they've just been like, "Oh, Daddy does that." 
it's the same as it's the same as kind of any um, any philosophy or you know there's there's a, there's a, like a spiritual element to it that sometimes certain people can become very dogmatic about um, how something's done. Um, for me, when I read like the agricultural course by Steiner, it's it's just full of ideas and you know he was a philosopher he wasn't a farmer he's just trying to sort of help and open people's minds and so for me it's just a mine of of ideas and they were just that and you can start then and explore them yourself and that's for me that's what biodynamics is about it's about trying to be proactive and trying to think on a much greater sort of level and and a wider sort of scope about what you're doing and why you're doing it and it's that sort of kind of that interrogation. The reason why every, all of the plants used in biodynamic preparations grow around here is because they've always been used. And it's kind of almost that knowledge has been lost. And so it's just his, to me, it's just his kind of reimagining of, of how and why they should be used. It's, it's having a kind of a philosophy to adhere to and to work to and having a sort of a greater purpose to it is it kind of, it's really helpful. You know, we were talking earlier about how hard farming can be sometimes. If you've got that kind of centre point, that like a moral sort of principle and why you're doing it, it gives you, uh, gives you a target and gives you something to, be, to go back to. Dave Morris from Anchor Hill Estates. As we heard in a recent episode, new farmer Joel Rodker is in the process of setting up a market garden near Peterborough. We're going to be back with him following his journey early in the new year. Earlier this year, Joel spent time with Jauma Pratel. Jauma is a chicken farmer who, like Joel, is moving towards making a living off the land. Here, he talks to Joel about some of the creative ways he's making the most of a challenging environment high in the mountains of Catalonia. Oh. It's surrounded by mountains, not very high. We are like 300 meters mm, height from the sea. Above sea level. Above sea level. We are surrounded of pine and oaks trees, forest. We are like 10 kilometers far from the sea. But since we are surrounded by mountains, we don't get that much the influence as other towns uh, around us. Mm, well, I'm Jaume Pretel. I'm 40 years old. And I'm doing chicken egg farming in Orrius, a little community about one hour far from Barcelona. Life goes up and down, so I was working in a... I was a technician in a shows company. Uh-huh. Since I had 
two sons, my two sons, uh, well, I realized I had to change my life. Mm -hmm. And one of my dreams was to work the land. Mm -hmm. And here in this community in Orbius, I found a place to work, uh, find a piece of land, because it's not easy. We arrived to Camfamadas, which is the, uh, the farm that we live and we work. And there was um, another man who was doing vegetables, just starting to. And we thought that doing eggs could be a good complement for his activity, the one that he was doing. And, well, we started learning about it because we only knew about our experience with three, four hands. That's it. And I was very lucky because my wife is very brave. And she was like, yes, let's do it. We are, we, that's our dream. It's now or never. We have, um, a, 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 we think it's a small farm. It's, uh, it's thought to be worked by my wife and myself. We have 1,200 hands mm -hmm. producing organic eggs. We have around 1,000 eggs a day. The first thing, our main um, occupation was to produce eggs. Once that we start producing, now then we concern about what to do with manure, as an instance. Manure is going back to the land with our neighbor who is uh, uh, who works on vegetables but also we are um, experimenting making worm castings mm -hmm. so we try to uh, feed worms with our chicken manure we are producing then um, worm castings that can be used in the field of our neighbors or other farmers. Mm -hmm. We are still working to improve that. And our main goal could be to feed our chicken, part of their meal, with those um, worms mm -hmm. that we are producing. Let's see. That's very difficult because we need thousands and thousands of worms, but that's, that could be our main goal in the next years. We are also working with the old hands, ones that they have finished their main productive period, so they get old. They don't produce a good quality egg because mm -hmm. the shell is very thin and they break. So with the old ones, we are making soup and we are it's a new product that we are trying and we make we mix it with um, organic vegetables and we make organic soup which okay. is it's not very it's a new thing in the in our market around we are changing our landscape our piece of the world that we are running um, and that means that we have to cut some trees to plant other trees we're doing like a transformation of the space following an idea that we have. We need trees because we need the shadow and we need the protection that the tree gives to the hands. 
but if we have an oak or a pine, it just it mm, it give us the shadow and the protection, but not fruit. We thought that if we change it, we also can f have fruit for the hens and for us. Mm -hmm. And we start um, um, having some proofs to see if, uh, because we don't have that much water. So we tried to see how they react. And well, actually we have around 50 fruit plants, fruit trees of all kind of species, all the species that we are working with uh, a farmer that recuperates these vari 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 varieties of uh, old fruit trees. Mm -hmm. So we have like a garden of different kind of, of uh, fruit. My life has changed uh, in a better way since I can I if I can, if I want I can have breakfast lunch or dinner with my sons and my family I work next to my house I'm I put my timetable I choose my customers in some way mm -hmm. and I wouldn't change that I've never done it before and I like it a lot and I am also more uh, related to land, which is satisfying, and also my com with my community. Now, I'm not Jauma. They call me Jauma, the mm, the, the egg producer. Mm -hmm. So, so you are. We have an identity related to the land, mm -hmm. and I like that too. Mm -hmm. People don't do that much, but they like having people around them producing. Mm because they know where products come from. That was Jauma Patel talking to Joel Rodker for Farmerama. Ari Delania is the owner-operator of community-supported Kamayan Farm near Seattle. Kamayan, by the way, is Tagalog for with hands, a reference to the Filipino tradition of eating with your hands, and to the intimate connection between us and our food. As well as being a farmer, Ari is also an educator, with a focus on the land and plants as medicine. She spoke to Abby about both aspects of her work, and the ways they inform each other. I just finished a workshop series around the theme of plant allies, and so we were exploring the idea of using plants as sort of a guide into our own personal well-being. And so the first workshop was on plant meditation and learning how to sit with plants and be in deeper relationship with them. A lot of the people who come to my farm live in cities generally, and they are around plants all the time, but maybe not present enough to see that or to notice that. And so we wanted to give them some tools to be able to feel more resilient and feel more connected to the place that they're in, even if they're living in a city and they're just walking a few blocks every day to catch the train. And part of that, I think when you're talking about communicating with plants, which might sound kind of crazy to people, is like 
being able to trust your own intuition, right? And that like what you hear, what you perceive from plants is actually good and valid information. And I think that's a knowledge set that's been lost over time as we've become more industrialized and there's more focus on like hard science. So I think that it's a type of knowledge that's much older that I'm trying to bring back by using plants. I came from a place that was like really lush. There were trees everywhere. There was plant life everywhere. And I spent a lot of my childhood sort of escaping into that. And I went to college thinking I would do like environmental law or something and be kind of an advocate for the environment. And then when I started studying environmental justice, I I started thinking more deeply about all the ways that people and the environment are so interconnected and that um, you can't actually approach like advocating for the environment without talking about the people that are reliant upon it. And so I just went really deep into food work because everyone has to eat and there are so many different issues that intersect with food and how we eat. Um, So you can have conversations about it forever from so many different angles. And that ended me up in the policy world, which was great and a really amazing learning experience. And I feel grateful now as a farmer to have that framework to think through when I'm doing my work and when I'm talking to people. But I had been moving around doing all these different jobs for years and years and years, and I wanted to go home. I was really tired, and my body was really tired. And I went back home, and I started farming, and I think... It's been a really amazing experience to farm and do land work where you grew up because I know the history of that place and I have a personal history there. Um, So I think for me personally, it's been really healing and that's been part of what I've been trying to share with other people. In the UK, we don't focus so much on our cultural context Mm -hmm. as much as it is here and especially like different ethnicity, all that kind of stuff doesn't come up nearly as much. Mm It would be great if you could say like what your cultural context is being here and how that kind of manifests in the agricultural world. There's a number of different ways I could describe that, but typically what I tell people is that I'm mixed white and Filipina, and I often say that I'm a bridge builder because I sort of exist in two different worlds and I'm in some ways sort of this anomaly, and so I have a lot of community that are folks of color and Filipino folks, and then I also grew up inside of a white family and so I kind of exist in a lot of different cultural contexts which I think is part of why my work feels really relevant to me because I see a lot of people especially where I'm farming there's a lot of Filipino folks who have immigrated or just a lot of immigrants in general who um, experience trauma through the act of migration and maybe it was they chose to move but a lot of times that wasn't the case their families had to leave their countries of origin and so I think that um, I've been moving towards sort of catering to them because there's such a longing to to have a sense of place and belonging and to find people who are talking about land in a way that feels relevant to them and the sort of like movement that they've experienced because I think when you get displaced from your homeland There's so much um, loss there. And if you don't find ways to sort of fill that hole, it can be deeply traumatic for the rest of your life. I don't think there's anything that can fix that, but I think learning the plants of a place and the environment and the ecosystems of a place that you're currently living in can be a way to sort of heal and mend some of that. 
I've learned so many things about my body and the way that my body works just by working on the land. And um, one of the other farmers said earlier, like, I don't want to be the farmer that at age 60, my body doesn't work anymore because of working this land. And I'm constantly thinking of the lessons that the land is trying to teach me. And one of those things is like, the land doesn't overwork, you know, like the land knows how to work in community and all the plants know how to work in community with each other so that they're not straining constantly. And one of the things that like teaches me that is sort of the temporality or the, the impermanence of everything. And so a lot of days I'll be running around really, really busy. And part of my business is to harvest medicinal herbs and A lot of things that are medicinal are also considered weeds. So sometimes there'll be this big flush of weeds that I need to harvest for my business. And I won't notice because I'll just be so busy, like running and running and running. And the land is so generous and constantly teaching you how to be present and how to be in your body and aware enough to to sort of move through those cycles with it. I'm constantly grateful that the land is so patient with humans and just is like, okay, here's your lesson again. Here it comes again. And, um, you know, I feel really lucky when there are those moments when I actually stop to pay attention. A lot of people were talking about this idea of like the feminine and nurturing, which I think is really important. But I also think that the feminine can also be about like destruction and renewal and like anger and you know I think that there are all of these incredibly dynamic ways that women can be and in my farming community there are tons of women who are all so different and that's part of what makes it a really robust community and so I I think it's important to not be reductive or minimize what women can look like in this movement because we need women that have such different characteristics to do all the different pieces of it you know there's like restaurant work there are chefs there are farmers there are herders and pastoralists we need all of those people and anybody any woman could do those jobs you know so I think it's it's a matter of creating a platform for all of that diversity to show because then I think more and more people will come to join us what does that platform look like I guess is the question I mean that's a difficult question I think it it depends on the scale that you're talking about. But for example, in my local community, I see women doing a ton of the work. Like they're running their own farms and then they're also doing local policy work and they're also putting on these events. They're doing a ton of labor. A lot of women just don't have enough time to also be at the front of a room talking to people at the end of their 16-hour day. And what I think is actually really necessary now is that like men and other people that are sort of peripheral to this farming movement are stepping up to help support and take on some of that labor so that they can be the voice and they can represent themselves. The more that we can mirror the diversity of what nature creates, the, the better off we'll be and the more resilient we'll be. And I think there's no one path or one model for how we can do this. And I think the more models that there are, the better off we'll be. Thanks for joining us this month, and in fact, all this year. We've had a brilliant time bringing you stories from farmers and growers all over the world. And we're looking forward to lots more in the new year. Personally, I'm still grounded, quite literally, by the reminder in episode 23 that we're all going to end up as soil. And I loved hearing about care farming projects in episode 21. 
Great examples of agriculture producing emotional, mental and social yields as well as physical ones. I loved hearing from the Welsh sheep farmer Rhys Roberts and Dame Fiona Reynolds in episode 22 with their thoughts on beauty and actually all the people who got in touch after saying farming is definitely about beauty to them. Looking forward, I'm excited about the ongoing consultation on the Good Food Nation Bill here in Scotland. It has the potential to be a pioneering, cross-cutting piece of legislation, but only if a truly wide range of voices have the opportunity to contribute. If you're involved at all, do get in touch. For the year ahead, I'm excited to hear more stories from the fields. What's important to you? We make Farmarama to share knowledge amongst the independent farming community. So if you've got another story for us, do let us know. We'd love to help you bring it to air, and there are many different ways we can do that. We can support you to record a story yourself and then help with the editing. Or you might like to tell us your story over the phone, or even invite us down to your farm to visit you in person. If you've got an idea, let's talk and see how it might happen. Farmerama is produced by me, Katie, me, Abby, and Joe, who does a lot of organizing and editing behind the scenes. Thank you, Joe. We'd like to thank everyone we've worked with this year. The list has grown so long that we can't mention everyone by name. But for this episode, thank you to Joel Rodker for bringing us Catalonian chickens, and to Annie for her social media support. Thank you also to someone who's there in the background every month, Owen, who provided our theme music. We're not bored of it yet, but we would love you to make us some more. Toodaloo!